Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast from The Times. This is a live special episode recorded at Times and Sunday Times Fringe event at the Labour Party Conference in association with the UK Spirits Alliance. I'm delighted to be joined by Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell. John, what's going on? It's been, it's been a quiet few days. I'm, I'm about to go back to London, and I'm, I'm not sure whether I'm going back to London to go to Parliament or to do a citizen's arrest on Boris Johnson. <laughs> to be honest, none of us have ever been in this situation before. This is completely unprecedented. We have a Supreme Court decision, which I wasn't expecting, actually. I thought the Supreme Court might, might be a bit hesitant, but the ruling, 11 judges all agree with themselves. The language, pretty straightforward, um, but we have a Prime Minister who effectively have broken the law, ignored the law, ignored all our democratic traditions, prorogued Parliament for his own political ends, denied um, the right of parliamentarians to hold the Prime Minister of his government to account. The situation for me is that I think there's a, the onus now is on the shoulders of Conservative Party members. They elected him as their leader. They uh, allowed him to become Prime Minister. I think they need to question now the wisdom of their judgment in allowing that to happen. So just talk us through, where were you this morning? How did you watch it? Who were you with? What was the first word that came out of your mouth? <laughs> I, was doing, I was actually doing a, a fringe meeting with Bloomberg, the CBI, and um, answering questions about climate change and investment and where we go from here, uh, which is all very entertaining. And then the, the phone got passed up to me to, with the judgment itself, and I had to leave the meeting to then go and have discussions with Jeremy and others about where we go from here. The first words that came out of me, out of my words, were bloody hell. They really were. Um, because it's just, it's, it's just unheard of. It's just history in the making. Um, the other words were a bit fruitier. Um, the, <laughs> oh, come on, you can share it. We're all friends. I, actually, I know we're joking about it a bit, but I was bloody angry, to be honest. I thought, look, I... Whatever people think, I was elected by my constituents to go into Parliament to represent their views, to hold the government to account, and to do that uh, in the interest of my constituents. To have someone come along 
just because they want to avoid being held to account and close down Parliament. We haven't seen that since, well, 350 years ago, since Charles I turned up and closed it down. And we had a civil war as a result of that. And the civil war... Give it was time. <laughs> well, the civil war was all about establishing the rights of Parliament, but actually that then developed into the rights of the people. So ordinary working people would then have the right to vote and that would elect our MPs to, to represent them. And to, for anyone to interfere in that, I think is uh, not only unlawful, it's outrageous, but I actually think it's dangerous as well. It sets a precedent. When you have politicians who ignore, ignore the law, that then disparage the very institutions that uphold our democracy, both Parliament and the courts, I think they're unleashing forces which could produce dangerous results as we've seen in our history overall. So that's why we have to stand up to this. We know what Boris Johnson is up to. We're not gullible. Um, what he's trying to do now is paint himself as this anti-establishment figure who's fighting the courts and parliament on behalf of the people. I think there's nothing further from the truth. This is a member of the elite who thinks he's so entitled so entitled to just ignore the common rules that we all abide by. And I think we have to stand up to that and call out for what it is. What we now do... Well, that's my next question. Okay. So you, you go and see Jeremy. You're plotting what to do next. We're then, what is the plan? Okay, what we do is we will now go to Parliament tomorrow and we'll be consulting with the other opposition parties on the, on the next stages of this. Obviously, the first issue is around holding him to account around the law as it now stands. So, yes, of course... Is he now undertaking negotiations to secure a deal? Will he now abide by the law and make sure that there's an extension on, on the basis of the legislation we put through? That's the first thing. The second thing then is actually to get into the detail, moving on from Yellowhammer, about what's happening with the threat to, to the no-deal Brexit. Yellowhammer that was you know, produced, what we need to now have is have full openness and transparency. And that's the role of parliamentarians, to question uh, ministers and prime ministers to make sure we have that openness and transparency. At some stage, there will be a discussion with the other opposition parties about the parliamentary mechanisms that we use. And obviously, one of the parliamentary mechanisms that will be open to us is a vote of no confidence. Yeah, so are you going to move on we'll this week? Well, we'll consult with the other opposition parties, but also, remember, we'll be consulting with others across the House as well. But I, I actually do think the first step is not for us to take. I think the first step is for the Conservative Party itself to take. I think they have a responsibility to us now. They always parade themselves as the party of law and order. They should start enforcing the law now themselves. And maybe it is time, if Boris Johnson doesn't decide to step down, maybe they should remove him. So in practical terms, what does that mean? I mean, there were lots of journalists in the room. They all want to know. Are we going to have to go to the Tory party conference at the weekend? Because <laughs> we're all quite tired. Um, if there's one saving grace from all of this, you might not have to join the Tories. So do you think, so do you think that this will mean the Tories have to cancel their conference next week? There's all rumours that Boris Johnson might try and broke Parliament again. Or there's rumours flying round that they're discussing a whole range of tactics to prevent Parliament sitting. And what we've learnt under the auspices of Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, that they'll resort to anything. They'll resort to anything to prevent Parliament holding them to account. 
But that's been a pattern that Boris Johnson has had in every elected office. He's always avoided accountability and scrutiny. Um, largely because I genuinely think, I genuinely think that maybe it's his background, his upbringing, I don't know. I genuinely think he's one of the, those politicians who does feel that he's got the, he was born to rule, that he's somewhat different from the rest of us. He doesn't have to be accountable. He doesn't have to abide by the rules. And I think that's deep set within Boris Johnson and the coterie that he has around him. So on the, on the specific question of a vote of no confidence, could you see that happening before October the 31st? There's a potential of it. There's a real potential of it now. And it depends on Johnson and the Conservative Party's reaction to today. It depends on the other opposition parties, and we've been, as you know, what we've been doing is we've been meeting with them on a regular basis. Jeremy chairs a meeting of all the opposition party leaders and others. They come in, um, and uh, it's been a fruitful because we've been able to defeat the government on a number of occasions, pass legislation on that basis too. A lot will depend also as much on Conservative MPs themselves and how many of them are willing to stand up against Johnson now. Now, one of the ideas that was floated over the summer was in the event of a vote of no confidence, you might have a caretaker prime minister, whatever you call it, to, to delay Brexit, maybe have a second referendum. One of the stumbling blocks on that was nobody could agree who the prime minister in that uh, was. Joe Swinson, particularly the Dems, was opposed to Jeremy being the prime minister in that situation. Do you think that might change? Are those, are those the conversations you're having? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We haven't had that conversation. But it's interesting that Joe Swinson has been the only one. The others around that table appear to have accepted that it should be the main opposition party and therefore it should be Jeremy Corbyn leading any caretaker government. I actually think the climate might have changed and I think some of the language that Joe Swinson has used attacking Jeremy on a very personal basis um, is unfortunate. And I think in some ways, um, maybe even politically, tactically for her, it's been a quite a considerable mistake. I think some within her own party haven't found that to be appropriate or acceptable. And therefore, it, I think the, the, the climate has changed. And I, any, I actually think any, any opposition party leader who doesn't work in cooperation with the other uh, opposition parties, in particular with, with Jeremy, I think they'll be ostracised by, by not just the, within their own party, but more generally as well by the general public, because people want now people to work together to resolve this situation. And that's what Jeremy's been able to do. I've attended each one of those meetings. They've been extremely businesslike. Um, Jeremy has always introduced them. Everyone has had their say. And then Jeremy summed up and coordinated the, the plan of approach. And there's been no disagreements whatsoever. Unlike other discussions like that, there's been barely any leaks from those discussions and there's been no counter-briefing or anything like that. So he's built up a working relationship with the opposition parties, which one I think they have increasing confidence in. The thing about the Joe Swinton attacks though, and, the, and Joe Swinton's leadership, is that it seems to be working. The Lib Dems are in some polls ahead of the Labour Party. They have a, a much easier to explain policy on Brexit than you do. And if you look at the polls, somewhere between a quarter and a third of people who voted Labour in yeah. 2017 are now saying they're going to vote Lib Dems. So actually, if there was a general election, it's not at all clear that even the people who voted for you last time would vote for you, never mind getting more people to, to get Jeremy into number 10. OK. I'm not, I'm, I understand the point you're making. It's not something I disregard at all. 
but I do have an element of scepticism with regard to polling overall. Um, during the last general election, you know, when the last general election was called, we were 24 points behind in the polls. And I, I can remember the commentators writing us off completely. I can remember a few articles saying you know, that we would have a result that was the equivalent of the 1930s, where we'd be down to a limited number of MPs, etc. I said at that point in time, I didn't believe the polls, but also once we got into the real election campaign, the legal requirement of balanced broadcast media coverage, they'd see what we're about in terms of a manifesto and they'd see what Jeremy Corbyn really is like. And we published our manifesto. Um, someone very helpfully leaked it for us. Um, <laughs> um, we had four days of widespread coverage. I tell you, everyone thought it was me that leaked it. It wasn't me. But next time... Um... <laughs> well, you know I am, John, yeah. next time, because we'll, we'll um, do it together. But we, we shot up 10 points in the polls within 48 hours of that. And then as Jeremy toured around the country... But you are now down 15 points on what uh, happened in 2017. Je Jeremy's personal ratings are I'm the saying, worst of any party leader since polling began. He's saying, gone backwards. What I'm saying is, is that the polls themselves can change rapidly once you get into that campaign. And I think once people see, we've seen some of it this week about the new policies we're advocating. Once we get the new policies out there, it's amazing how much you can transform people's views about the party that they'll vote for. Similarly, once we get Jeremy out there in the broadcast media, and again, they see the real Jeremy Corbyn, I think that, that will change. I actually thought the Marr interview on Sunday morning was one of the best interviews that Jeremy gave because he was relaxed, straight, answered all the questions and actually also confronted some of the challenging challenges that Marr was putting to him extremely well in his own very personal and, and caring style. The more we have of that, I think the more we'll turn it around. However, you're right, the issue of Brexit has been the blanketing issue overall. Um, now we've got a clear path on, on our way through that we can campaign for. Are you happy with the policy? Yeah, Are I you am. Happy I with what happened yesterday? I'm happy that we've got to the right position. Um, I think it gives us a process that we can explain to people because the fundamental issue now is very, it's very easy as a political party to go to either extremes. You know, revocation on one hand and at the same time a no-deal Brexit on the other hand. We've got, we have got to be, it's, it's not just politics this or tactical, it's just the responsibility that's on our shoulders. We have got to be the party that brings the country back together again. And I can't see any other way of doing that other than going back to the people with a, with a couple of options that they can then take a final decision then we'll implement. And you would back Remain in any circumstance? Is there any deal, do you think, that you would campaign for I've leave? Not, I've not seen one. I went... I was six weeks in the negotiations with the Tories. Um, no one should have to endure that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and during that process, yes, we, gave, we pushed them a bit, but we never got as far as we could do. At the same time, the European Union were, we were obviously in dialogue in terms of just putting ideas on the table to see how, whether they, they were receptive or not. And we got, you know, it's close to a, what was a, a workable deal in terms of permanent customs union, close relationship single market, dynamic protection of environmental and workers' rights, etc. But even now, looking back at that, it still, for me, isn't as good as remaining. That doesn't mean to say I don't believe that 
in remaining, we shouldn't have reform within the EU as well. And that's the discussion that we're having with a number of our European partners. So at the moment, I can't see a deal that would be as good as remain. But you know, others have, can take their own views on this, and I respect that. And that's actually, I think, what's happened over the last few days is that I, that concept of being able to recognize, yeah, there are differences of views, but we can live with them as long as we respect each other's views and eventually we come down to a democratic decision. It may well be that, you know, there's some enhanced deal that will be brought back. At the moment, I just can't see it. The interesting thing for me now is planning the next stages of our relationship with Europe. So um, we were going to do it in October. It's now going to be January because of just all the other commitments that have come up. We were, we were going to hold some form of seminar or conference or whatever with a whole range of European progressive movements and partners to talk about the reforms that we'd like to see, but more importantly, the policy programme that we want to see. And a lot of that is around effect effectively a European Green New Deal and how we can uh, mobilise the scale of resources that we need for that. So again, what we're trying to do now is make sure that the debate around Europe isn't just about in or out or whatever, it's about the sort of Europe that we want and the Europe that we think could play a significant role globally overall. In an interview with The Times on Saturday, which seems like a very long time ago, um, you said you thought there was a 60% chance of an election before the end of the year. Has that changed? What's the odds now? Most probably the same. Most probably, maybe, maybe up to... I'm not a betting person anymore, I lose too much. Um, the, um, <laughs> I think there's about 65% of that. Okay. I think it's edged up, edged up a bit. But the issue then is, is it, for me, is it November or is it spring? It's going to be one or the other. Yeah. I thought more likely November the way, that, the, the way that we're going. But things can change very dramatically. I think over the next 48 hours it could change quite dramatically. Um, I wanted to talk about the Queen because she's been in the news a lot. We thought the worst thing that happened was David Cameron asked her to raise an eyebrow. Now she's... She's at the centre of this amazing court case at the Supreme Court. The worst thing that can happen is meeting Jacob Rees-Mogg. <laughs> well, you, you've met her. You're on the Privy Council. You yeah. kissed, kissed hands. Yeah. You did all of that. Yeah. Um, six out of ten Labour members want to abolish the monarchy. Do you agree with them? I'm People not, here seem to agree with that. No, I'm, look, I have a lot of respect for Her Majesty. I have a lot of respect for her. Um, and the, the role that she's played, I think, is demonstrated her commitment to her own people and the country. But I'm a Republican. I am a Republican. I don't believe in a monarchy. I don't believe um, in, in positions being inherited. Tony Benn always used to say that, inheritance. He used to say, look, I'm going in for an operation tomorrow, and the bloke who's going to operate on me isn't qualified, but his dad was a surgeon, but don't worry about it. And, and so it's that I'm a Republican and I believe in people in position should be elected. But that doesn't mean to say I don't have the respect for the role that she's played. She came to my constituency, I showed her around the town centre and I found her actually lovely. So nice with people and I, and I had a lot of time for her. And she was, she was just very, very nice and people loved that she visited, etc. But I, I'm a firm Republican and uh, believe everyone in, in, a, in positions of any decisions or power or whatever or even honorary position should be elected. Do you, do you think there'll be a public debate about that when the time comes and it's Prince, and it, there is that inheritance and Prince yeah. Charles places there? I don't think so. The, the debate at the moment, um, the constitutional debate at the moment, um, is, is not about the monarchy. The constitutional debate that we now have to have is whether or not um, 
the institutions that we uh, are available to us are sufficiently democratic to hold politicians and others to, to account. So that means, um, for example, for me, the constitutional bugbear for me has been significantly, why do we have a House of Lords of which it still has non-elected members in? And others, uh, sorry, hereditary members in. And They're the only ones who are elected, well, really. The hereditary you know, ones. Amongst, the, amongst themselves. Yeah. So they have hereditary members and then all appointed members. The discussion that we're having at the moment is how do we reform that? And one of the ideas, Pauline Bryant, who we, we put into the House of Lords to abolish the House of Lords, that's the only reason she was willing to go in, um, is bring forward ideas around federalism, of how having elected Senate instead of a House of Lords. And in that way, I think we can also rectify some of the issues around our electoral system because we could have that elected on proportional representation. So that's the debate we're going to have now. It's more significant than the one around a monarchy. If you looked at British politics and thought, this is not normal, join me, Matt Chorley, on my tour as I try to explain what the hell is going on. For tickets, go to mytimesplus.co.uk. So what I'm going to try and do is to try and explain why politics has gone so weird. Now this is going to take about four or five hours. Um, <laughs> it's the run-up to the 2007 local government elections. And I was going to interview David Cameron. So I asked him lots of really tough questions, like why do people vote Conservative? Why do you love Cornwall so much? What's your favourite farm animal? <laughs> if only I'd asked a follow-up question. <laughs> up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When will the Labour Party introduce a 32-hour week for its staff? Right, that will be subject is exactly to the same policy as elsewhere. Will be negotiations between the workers and the trade unions themselves. Uh, the trade unions uh, representing the workers and management itself. And what we'll do is, I hope, over time, reflect what's going on in, in wider society. We've set um, our target as within the next decade, getting down to three pledge two hours a week. Now, actually, that time scale is interesting because a decade seems a long period of time. It might well be, but the more that we invest in our economy, the more that we have enhanced productivity, the quicker we can then decide on the distribution of the wealth that we create, either in wages or in reduced working time. 
And the issue I was trying to make in the speech yesterday is the research that we've done, which is basically right up until the 70s, the increases in productivity, some of that was genuinely shared in reduced working hours. And then around about the 70s, it, the link between productivity and reduced working hours became broken. And you can look at how that's happened, undermining of trade union rights, that sort of thing. But now what we've got to do is try and restore that link. And it is this issue, you know, time and time again, I say, you know, we, we work to live. We don't live to work. And for a lot of people, that's what life isn't like at the moment. Given, I mean, it's literally in the lane, the Labour Party and the Party of the Workers, do you think, as an organisation, it's done enough to look after the people who work and or volunteer for it, whether it's bullying of staff in Parliament, allegations of sexual harassment, anti-Semitism? Yeah. The Labour Party's record in recent years on how it looks after its own stuff. You're telling businesses to, yeah. to look after their staff better. Do you think the Labour Party should be better? What I'm proud about is with the appointment of Jenny Forby, they're the issues that she's identified as addressing. And it just shows you actually, if you, if you appoint the right management, those issues will be tackled. And she's doing that with, with a ruthlessness and a commitment, I think that was maybe lacking previously over a number of years. The issues for us overall is making sure our staff are properly rewarded, properly cared for and properly respected. That's the sort of regime, if you like, that Jenny has introduced and, as I say, is quite rigorously enforcing them. One of the big policies at conference, which went down really well in the hall and got a lot of coverage as well this week, is the uh, plan to abolish private schools. Yeah. What, when do you think that will happen? What we want to do is integrate them into the National Education Service. Um, and what that means is, literally, it means building a consensus around that. So what we'll be doing is sitting down with the representatives of those private schools to talk about the implementation of it over a period of time. I can't estimate at the timing at the moment because actually there's so many issues that we need to deal with. But I, don't, I wouldn't want this to drag on. I, because I, Is it right, it was reported this week, you'd raised concerns about the idea of total abolition. It's one thing we're moving channels, no, status and tax no, 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 support. I, and, I, no, the, what, I won't divulge what went in on the composite meeting, but I basically said I want to make sure that we do this step by step. So for me, the withdrawal of charitable status and the tax advantages that private schools has is something that we can do very quickly. Now, removing some of the tax advantages we put in the last manifesto and in the grey book on the costings of the policies, that, that would have paid for the free school meals for children. So I want to make sure that we do that step by step. One of the issues I raised is about the property issues and trusts and endowments. And the issue I raised there is that we're really struggling at the moment in terms of the complexity of endowment and trust law. Um, and I'm picking that to enable us to ensure that trusts and endowments are not used to avoid tax, first of all, and also not used just to continue bolstering privilege. So when we were debating the, um, the, the motions that came forward, I, I, I made it clear publicly last week that I support the integration of private schools into the NES. But I did say there's some real issues there that I'm struggling with at the moment. And we'll need time and also much more legal advice on how we overcome them. Because I didn't want to 
I didn't want people, um, I didn't want to kid people that we could do things overnight or it wasn't going to be complicated or difficult because otherwise you disillusion people then. So I, uh, it's work in progress. This whole issue around trusts, I think, is, is quite significant for us. But we've been working with, you know, Professor Prem Seeker from the Professor of Accountancy. We've been working with the Tax Justice Network. And we have a range of legal advisors now that have um, actually been uh, just so committed to ensuring that we have fairness and proper scrutiny in that area. You mentioned costings and making sure everything added up. Um, the IFS have looked at what you've been announcing this week. They yeah. think it's amounts to about £70 billion. The tax advisors you had in your manifesto, 50. somewhere, well, you say 50, I think they say 30 to 40, but what's 10 billion? There were more tax advisors to pay for the stuff that you've announced this week. In the last, um, sorry, in the last manifesto, when the grade book that we costed, the, the amount of take that we were undertaking was about 49 billion. Um, what we'll do now on the policies that we've, had, that we've been discussing now, as we prepare the next manifesto, We'll go through the detailed costings of them, and then we'll identify the funding sources. Um, I'm still of the view that in terms of income tax, as Jeremy said today, it will be the top 5% and 95% will be protected. But we, I'll just give you one example um, that you may have missed. Two weeks ago, we launched our revised financial transaction tax. And that means now that we'll be able to let raise in the lifetime, five-year lifetime of, of a government, uh, £35 billion. And I'd like to see that, I'd like to see those resources then applied to some of the climate change issues that we're addressing. So we're looking at how we hone down some of the proposals that we had last time and then looking at a wider range of ensuring that we have a stable financial base for all the investment that we need to put in. So just finally, the most shocking thing I read over the weekend is you've stopped learning the trombone. That's untrue. That's, That's a lie. Untrue. That's a lie. That's you a can't lie. trust the media. <laughs> no, no I, it, was, um, it was one of your one of your colleagues who raised it with me. And actually, he said, how's the trombone going? And I said, oh, God. Uh, I'm not allowed to play in the house, I have to play oh. in the garden. Uh, so I said it's not going very well and uh, it's stalled. Uh, and so he interpreted that as I've given up. I yeah, never give up. I okay. never give up. Okay. Well, I did say to him, I have got through the first bars of the red flag. That's a major thing. <laughs> well, I, I wish you bought it tonight. You could have played us out. Um, so we really appreciate you taking time out. Thank you to all of you uh, for coming. Uh, my thanks once again to the Times for Sunday Times and our sponsor, the UK Spiritualized. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.